I, I want you to imagine something with me. So, so I want you to imagine that you are a climbing coach for a bunch of little kids. So you're teaching them how to scale those climbing walls that you see in gyms or that you see at different outdoor sports. Um, and one afternoon, you're looking at the wall before the kids show up, and, and you realize that on this wall, there's a few of the handholds that have proven untrustworthy. You'd look at it and you'd say, you know, th these five or six handholds, 60 to 70% of the time, when the kids grab them, they buckle under their weight and the kids don't find them helpful. And so because of that, you look at those handholds and you say, it probably would be best just to get those out of there. I mean, they work some of the time, but they're generally not trustworthy. And I don't want any kid to be climbing, thinking they're grabbing a hold of something solid and then finding out that it buckles under their weight. So I'm just going to go and get those handholds and remove them from the wall. And then as you step back and look at the new wall, you realize, well, there's some other handholds in here that probably 20 to 30% of the time they don't work either. So they work a lot of the time. But I don't want any of the kids, even 30% of the time, to be grabbing a hold of a handhold that's going to buckle under their weight. I want them, when they see a handhold, to be able to grab it and know that it can hold them. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to take out all the 20 to 30% handholds just to make sure nobody grabs a hold of something that they think is solid and then finds out it's not solid. And then you step back and you look at the wall. And then at this point you say, you know what I've learned through these handholds? I've learned that you just can't trust a handhold. <laughs> I mean, we have the 60 to 70% handholds. We have the 20 to 30% handholds. Handholds in general, I don't know why we would trust them. So, you know, if I really love these kids and if I really want to make sure that they never end up in a situation where they grab a hold of something that's solid and find out that it's not, I need to just take away all the handholds. So I'm going to get them all off the wall. And then the kids show up for practice, and they look at the wall, and you look at the wall, and you say, have at it. <laughs> this to me, what I just described, is an illustration of what we are currently doing in our culture when it comes to manhood and womanhood. What we've done largely is we've looked at life and we've said, you know what, we have some bad, harmful stereotypes that maybe 60 to 70, 80% of the time are just, they're not helpful, they're wrong, they're misleading to young men and young women. And so you, you might look at one from the male standpoint and say, all right, the, the whole idea that men don't cry and that if you're really manly, you don't cry. We need to just get that handhold out of there. That, that's just, that's harmful to men, that's harmful to women, that's not good, we need to get that out of there. Um, and from the other standpoint, maybe there's some stereotype of, like women can't understand science. You know, if that's bad, we're just gonna get that out of there. That's a harmful handhold, it doesn't work, it buckles under people's weight, we need to get Get that out of there if people are ever going to figure this out. But then we start looking through at the wall and we say, well, there's some other ones that seem to generally be true, but they're not true 100% of the time, so we need to remove those also. And we keep removing and removing and removing to the point that right now there's a, there, there's a line of thinking in our culture that basically says we're going to have a blank, smooth wall. And we're going to say to ourselves and to the entire generation of little boys and little girls after us, have at it. Go ahead and try to figure this out. Try to figure out life. Try to figure out what it means as a young boy to grow into being a young man and what it means to be a little girl and grow into being a young woman. Figure this out. We're going to give you nothing solid to hold on to because we want to make sure we don't accidentally give you something that's going to buckle under your weight. We live in a very confused time when it comes to the subject 
of manhood and womanhood, of masculinity and femininity. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in our last week of our Barriers to Belief series. Now, let me just say before I go any further, I understand that even bringing up this subject, some of you are already like, I came on the wrong Sunday. Oh my gosh, I should have slept in. It was raining. I thought about not coming, but I showed up because I trusted God. And this is what I get for it. We're talking about this. So I, I just say that to, to recognize, for some of you, your, your heart's already beating. You're saying, oh my gosh, what's he going to say? Am, am I going to be offended? Is this going to get super political? Like, what, what, what's going to happen here? And, and what I want to say is, I do understand that any time in talking about this subject, um, I and, and we as a church, we run the risk of having people offended, and we also run the risk of having some people come in and say, I'm not sure I want to listen. So I understand that, that for some of you, this is going to be a hard subject. But here's what I want to say. It's a risk to talk about this. I'm not willing to take the risk on the other side. The risk on the other side is that we say, you know what? Let's just leave it to the world to help us figure out what masculinity and femininity are. Let's just leave it to the world to teach our young men and our young women what it means to be manly, what it means to be feminine. Let's just leave it to them. And the reason that I'm unwilling to do that is not because I think I figured this out. It's because I think that God has spoken on this. And I understand that in talking about this subject, for some of us, we can get nervous and we can be not quite sure what we're going to get. But let me tell you my hope and my prayer for all of us this morning. My hope and my prayer as we talk about this is not that we're agitated or that we walk out of here saying, well, God says it, I guess we just got to do it. My hope is that we walk out of here having drank a cold cup of water in a desperate dry land. That we hear a message from the God of the universe that starts to bring order into our chaos. And that as men and women, we can embrace God's good design for us, not simply because we say, God is God, I guess he gets to decide, but because we begin to see the beauty of what he's created with us as men and women. And that's really the foundation of what I want to talk about all this morning. If I can give you a tagline, if I can give you a big idea of what we're going to be talking about this morning, it's this. It's that masculinity and femininity are not obstacles to overcome, but gifts to embrace. If you're a man, masculinity is not something you've got to get away from. If you're a woman, femininity is not something that you've got to reject. These are not obstacles to overcome, but gifts to embrace. Now, just as a point of clarification, there may be stereotypes and harmful generations that are obstacles to overcome, but true God-given biblical masculinity and femininity are not obstacles to overcome. They're gifts of God for us to embrace. And we are in some ways, we're, we're going to be in several different parts of the Bible, but we're going to have one passage as home base, and that's in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, go ahead and turn there because we're going to read from a part of Genesis 2 that I'll have on the screen, but I'm also going to allude to things in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, so it'll help to have the whole passage there. We're going to read Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, and use this as our home base of how we understand what God is saying to us on the subject of masculinity and femininity. So I'll be reading Genesis 2, verse, starting in verse 18, and if you don't have a Bible, the words will be up here on the screen as I read. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's word. As we walk through this and other passages of God's word this morning, here's what we're going to do. We are going to look into four core truths, four core foundational truths about men and women that come through in the story that we're being told in the Bible. And I'll tell you right now, the first one is going to be the easiest one, the quickest one, and the least controversial one. That's that men and women are equal. Now, here's the deal. If you were nervous, if your heart was beaten, let, let me just ask, we all okay so far? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, this is a good start. Men and women are equal. This comes through in Genesis 2, but you, do you know what happens before Genesis 2? Genesis 1, good job. <laughs> Genesis 1:27 has a foundational statement about God's creation of mankind. And it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From the very beginning, there was no idea that, all right, there's first-class citizens and second-class citizens in the human race. It is that all human beings are created in the image of God, male and female equally created in the image of God. And this is reinforced again and again and again in both the Old and the New Testament. Through all sorts of passages, Peter in 1 Peter 3 referring to men and women as co-heirs in the grace of life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the interdependency of men and women. And he refers back to Genesis 2 and says, well, you know, the first woman came from the man where you had God take the rib out, and so the first woman was made from the man. And then he says, and now, do you know where every man comes from? A woman. We're interdependent on this. The woman comes from the man, and now men come from women. We are interdependent. We are completely equal in all of this. Now, that's the foundation. That's the very first thing that we see about men and women, but that leads us into the second thing that we see, both in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. Men and women are equal, and the second is men and women are are different. Now, just as a quick plug, if you're looking at this and you're saying, all right, I'm curious about this whole equal yet different thing, um, tonight we are doing a deeper event, event in here at six o'clock on the Trinity. If you want to hear about another situation that has to do with equal and yet different, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, different and yet equal, you can come tonight, and it's going to be a rich time of us looking at this. But the whole idea of being different, this is where we begin again. All right, Men and women are equal, and yet men and women, from the very beginning, there's no doubt that they're presented as different. And as we walked through the story in Genesis chapter 2, it begins with God's statement about it's not good that the man is alone, which to me is profound, but also is a little bit funny. 
Because I just imagine God creating this perfect world and this guy who's not fallen and nothing's wrong in the whole world and he's looking down at him and everything's good, but he looks at the man and he's all by himself and he just says, this isn't good. This guy needs some help. So I'm going to make a helper suitable to him. And, and we'll talk more about that word helper and how profound that word is. Uh, he marches all the animals in front of him and Adam names them all and there's no helper suitable to him that's found. So he puts Adam into a sleep, takes out the rib, creates the woman and brings. And I just love the picture also that God is presenting the woman to Adam like, here's the greatest gift that you're ever going to see. You ain't seen nothing yet. You've looked all around. Here you go. And then in verse 23, when Adam first sees the woman, he spouts poetry. The first human poetry in the Bible. Genesis 2, 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Which, by the way, you know what he's saying in the first part of this poem? He's saying, she's like me. You showed me all the animals, and God, all the animals are great. They're not like me. She's like me. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then he says, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And here's where he recognizes, she's like me, but she's different than me. I'm not just going to say, I'm a man, there's another man. I'm going to say, we need a whole new name here. I'm man and she's woman. She was taken out of man. There's an instant recognition of the idea that we're, we're similar, we're alike, and yet we're different. And again, you, you wouldn't think that it would be a controversial thing to make a point that men and women are different. And, and even the most progressive person in our society would recognize, all right, at least at the biological level, at least when it comes to our, our physical bodies, there's clearly some differences between men and women. But it goes even deeper than our physical bodies. And one of the things that I've loved re- over the past couple of years, I've done a lot of reading in just the brain science between men and women and how different God has designed us even at the brain level. And not at the brain level once we've gotten older and got socialized, but at the level of even before we're born. And a couple of the books that I read were by this woman named Luanne Brizendine, and she wrote the book called The Female Brain and the book called The Male Brain, these kind of companions, about just the brain science. I, I don't know if she's a believer. They're not Christian books at all. They're just books about the brains of men and women. I want to read you just one extended quote from it because I thought it was so beautiful and so telling about the differences God has built into us. So she says, until eight weeks old, Every fetal brain looks female. Female is nature's default gender setting. If you watch a female and male brain developing via time-lapse photography, you would see their circuit diagrams being laid down according to the blueprint drafted by both genes and sex hormones. She says, all right, the starting, before the baby's born, male and female, there's a point where their brains are just identical. And then she talks about when they diverge, when they become distinctly male and distinctly female. So she says, a huge testosterone surge beginning in the eighth week will turn this unisex brain male by killing off some of the cells in the communication centers and growing more cells in the sex and aggression centers. (laughs) So you you just got to love that the brain transition from female to male begins with killing off a bunch of brain cells. It kills off a bunch of brain cells in the communication center, but then grows a whole bunch new in the sex and aggression center. And we could say, all right, this is starting to make a little bit of sense. Things are coming together. She, but she talks about the rest of this. She says, if the testosterone surge doesn't happen, the female brain continues to grow unperturbed. The fetal, which is funny to me also. It's like, oh, good. It's just a smooth sail. 
if, uh, I'm sorry, the, fe uh, the fetal girl's brain cells then sprout more connections in the communication centers and areas that process emotion. How does this fetal fork in the road affect us? For one thing, because of her larger communicative center, this girl will likely grow up to be more talkative than her brother. In most social contexts, she will use more forms of communication than he will. For another, it defines our innate biological destiny, coloring the lens through which each of us views and engages the world. This is before socialization. This is before we're out of the womb. In the womb, God has hardwired into us some pretty profound differences. And here's why even going back to the illustration of the climbing wall and the different handholds, it's one of those things where you could say, all right, no stereotype with men and women is, is 100%, but there's some stereotypes that exist there for a reason. They're not random, they're not oppressive, they're, they're just they're there because of human observation. It is a pretty common experience for a husband to say of his wife, she talks a lot. That's just, that's a pretty common thing. And it's pretty common for a wife to say, to, say of her husband, I wish he would just open up to me. There's a reason why these things happen. God has hardwired differences within us to the very beginning. Now, now, let me just tell you, here's what I think happens sometimes for those of us who are believers in Jesus when we read the Bible. We read the Bible and we get to a New Testament passage that says something like, um, the husband is the head of the wife and wives submit to your husbands. And we read that and to us, we're just like, well, that, that was out of nowhere. Like we're reading about Jesus and grace and forgiveness and hope and all these great things. And suddenly we get this verse about wives submit to your husbands. Um, or you may have noticed when we were up here earlier doing the elder commissioning, you might have said, huh, those were all men who are elders. That's not an accident. That's because we believe that that's what scripture teaches about eldership, that the elders are, are supposed to be men. And so we can get to passages like that and we can say, well, gosh, that, that seems really random. But you know what? I guess God is God. God gets to do what God wants to do. So I guess we just got to go with it because God's going to do what God's going to do. And here's what I want to say. Here's how I want us to view passages like that. Passages like that are times where God pauses to tell us a specific dance step. I want you to think of those where God says, all right, at this point, when it comes to marriage, here's where your foot goes, here's where your foot goes. When it comes to the life of the church, here's where your foot goes, here's where your foot goes, and then you're going to do this. These are specific dance steps that God is telling us about. But these dance steps make a lot more sense if you're hearing the music. Submission and headship are specific dance steps masculinity and femininity are the music that's undergirding it all. And I promise you that even though in the 21st century in the United States, if we read those passages, we're like, wow, it came out of nowhere. If you're reading Genesis to Revelation, those passages do not come out of nowhere. Those passages make a lot of sense. They just flow out of this idea that as men and women, we are absolutely equal. We are on equal footing before God. There's not one way that men are saved and one way that women are saved. There's not one way that we get adopted into the family and somebody else has to do something different. We are completely equal before God, but we have differences and those differences inform the way that we're going to interact in the world. And sometimes God just gets very overt with it. But if you're doing the dance and you have the man living out biblical masculinity and you have the woman living out biblical femininity, those dance steps are going to start just to feel a lot more natural and organic 
than something where you're stopping everything just to obey a random command that God has given. Men and women are equal. Men and women are different. And this next point might be the most important one because it gets into the substance of our differences. The third core truth is that men and women are complementary, which means we're not just different for the sake of being different. We're different because we each bring something profound and important to the table that we would be incomplete without. And this goes back to the beginning of our passage, chapter 2, verse 18. And we talked about kind of this first statement. It's not good for the man to be alone. And then God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And this, of course, refers to the woman. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And the word helper, that, that in our context today, that can seem like, all right, that, that's sort of a second class, all right, they, the, the guy's doing this and he's just going to bring a little assistant along. But what I want you to know is this word helper is not a second class word. In fact, one of the reasons that we know that the Hebrew word here doesn't refer in any way to the woman as an inferior is because there's at least three times in the Old Testament that God is referred to as a helper. That people say, the Lord is my helper. They're not saying the Lord is inferior to me. What they're saying is, the Lord came and helped me do something that I couldn't possibly do if he wasn't helping me. That's sort of the idea here. That God's saying, I'm going to bring him somebody that's going to help him do something that he couldn't possibly do if she wasn't around. The word helper doesn't imply inferiority at all. It's actually a strong, powerful word of partnership here. But it does also imply, and again, reinforce the idea that it's going to be different. It's not going to be two people doing the exact same thing and just trading off. There's going to be some differences here. The word helper does imply, and this is borne out in Scripture, that the primary responsibility to take the lead and to take responsibility is going to be on the man. That there's a godly masculinity that leads into taking responsibility and taking leadership. And there's a godly femininity that comes along with strong, powerful, nuanced, wise helpfulness in partnering together in what God has called us to do. And just if you're looking at this and saying, all right, that, that's just one word though, just the word helper. I don't know if I would assert all of those things about the man being the primary one that bears responsibility. I'd say, if you're doubting, let's just talk for a minute about what happens in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3 is the fall. It's where the man and the woman eat the fruit and sin enters into the world. Um, and, and if you're just telling just the facts about how the fall comes about, it comes about sort of like this. The serpent goes and tempts the woman. Whispers all kinds of things, tells lies to her. She decides to eat the fruit. And then after she's eaten the fruit, she gives some to Adam and he eats some of the fruit too. And then God comes. Now you could look at that. And again, if you were just making a case on paper, you could make a case and say, the person most at fault here is the woman. Person most at fault there is the woman. She was the first one to eat. And she even kind of, you know, trapped the man by giving him the fruit and telling him to eat too. So you can make a case here that she should be held primarily responsible. In fact, when God comes and confronts him in Genesis 3, you know the first thing that Adam says? It's like, yeah, it was her. It was her. God's like, what have you done? He's like, well, you gave me this woman. And so it's kind of her fault and kind of your fault, God, because I didn't ask for her. So, so he shifts the blame. Adam tries this. Now, let me just say, if you read both Genesis 3 and if you read the, the New Testament author's take on this, God is having none of that. You know who God holds responsible for the fall? 
He holds Adam responsible for the fall. If you read in the New Testament, there's a couple times that the Apostle Paul talks about the impact of the fall on the human race. And he never once says, Eve got us into this mess. Over and over again, he says, Adam got us into this mess. And Adam, and this is one of the, it's, it's tragic and it's also a little bit funny. It's mostly tragic though. Is that what Genesis 3 says, when this entire temptation is going on, once Eve takes the fruit and decides to eat from it, it then says, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. Which means the entire, that's right. <laughs> which means the entire time this was going on, Adam's sitting over there like a chump, not doing anything. The idea is not that Adam was off on a hunting trip and then came back and she was like, here's some fruit and he didn't know where it came from. He was watching the whole thing unfold. And Adam responds to God is basically like, oh, what are you going to do? What, what, what can you expect me to do? A pretty girl gave me some fruit. I ate the fruit. What do you expect from me? And you can imagine God saying to him, here's what I expected you to do. What I expected you to do is part way into the temptation to say, hey, no, 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 we're not having any of this. God gave us, no, we're moving away. You get out of here. You come with me. We're not going to do this. We're not doing that. You could have stepped in at any point, but instead the utter passivity and then the woman taking the opportunity to take the lead was part of the core of what went wrong at the fall. And the primary responsibility falls on the man. So a quick word to husbands on this. To all of us as men, but specifically to those of us who are husbands, quick word on, uh, for, for us on this. Um, the New Testament never tells husbands to be the head of your household. Never tells husbands to be the head of your household. Here's what it says. It says, you are the head. It doesn't say go be the head and that you have some choice in this. It says you are the head. So you can decide to be kind of like Adam. You can say, ah, I don't really want to take that responsibility. I'm just going to sort of sit over here and see what's happening. And you know what? Maybe, maybe she's kind of more spiritual than me anyway. And so I've got a wife that's really spiritual and she seems to be into this stuff. So I'm just going to let her take the lead. I'm not really sure I'm into it. And it's kind of daunting to think that it would be my role to take on responsibility for the family, to make sure that we're fed spiritually and to make sure that I'm leading my kids towards Jesus. That's a lot of responsibility. That's kind of daunting. I'd rather not have it. So you know what? I'm just going to let her be the head and, I, and I'm just going to stay back here. You don't have the luxury of that choice. Bible never says, be the head. The Bible says, you are the head. That means you can be like Adam and say, no, 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 it's her. God is going to hold you responsible. That doesn't mean that you're even necessarily more godly. That just means you are taking on the mantle of responsibility to say, all right, I need to embrace that God has called me to this. And, and for women, especially for wives in this situation, it doesn't mean that your husband is more godly than you. doesn't mean that he's more wise than you. It means he is more responsible before God than you. And that means that if you're in a situation where you're like, he's not really doing what he's supposed to be doing, and I'm trying in this situation, I'm trying to tell him the right thing to do. And so you know what I should do? You know, I should just take over. Enough is enough. He's not getting it done. I'm just going to take over. No more waiting on him. No more respecting him and reinforcing that. I'm, I'm just going to take over. God's message to you is you can trust God enough that even if your husband isn't acting in a trustworthy way, God will never let you down. God calls us both to a pretty courageous step. One of those courageous steps saying, all right, I got to take on the responsibility whether I feel up to it or not. And another courageous step is saying, oh, gosh, I've, I've, I've got to let him do it. I, I've got to reinforce this even if I don't think it's going to go real well. 
Ultimately, in both of these cases, we are together as brother and sister trusting God. We are complementary. And this is, frankly, there's so much beauty in this. And again, just, just for my heart for you, it, it, it would be tragic to me. I, I would hate for anybody to walk out of here and say, um, I'm going to do this stuff because God told me to, and God gets to tell us what to do. My dream is that we would walk out of here today and be overcome with the beauty of how God has made us and say, I want to be a part of that. I want to be part of godly masculinity. I want to be part of godly femininity. I want to bring my unique contribution to the body of Christ, to my family, to my home, to my world. I want to bring all of that. And let me just give you one quick example of how beautiful this can be when it's working together. Um, and and this, is, this is an example. It doesn't have to do specifically with marriage. So if you're a single man or single woman, that this is still something that I think applies. So a bunch of years ago when we were still living up in Oregon, I was, um, I was in with the kids one day, one, one Sunday morning. I was in with like the one-year-olds. It was me and three other women and they're taking care of all these little one-year-olds. And they're just at the stage where like they're walking, but they're kind of wobbly when they walk. And so there was this little boy in there, and I was kind of hanging out with him a little bit, and he was walking around wobbly and making his way around the room. And at one point while he was making his way around the room, he just fell, just went right down. That was me and three women in here, and all four of us said something at the exact same time. All four of us acted at once right when he fell. The three women all said the exact same thing. They all said, oh. It was exact. It was like a chorus in unison. They all said, aw. I, at the exact moment that they were all saying, aw, and looking to come over and check on him, I said, you're fine, get up. <laughs> it, was, it was utterly unrehearsed. And it was funny, because when I said it, these three women who were in there all the time, I wasn't in there all the time, they were in there all the time, they just kind of stepped back and were like, let's see how this goes. I'm not so sure about this. And, and thankfully, in that case, he just sort of got up and went on with his day and saw that he wasn't going to get a lot of sympathy from me. And so it, so it worked out okay. Now, here's the funny thing about that. That is an example of one of the things that men and women uniquely bring to the table. And in that case, it was good. It was actually a good thing that I was there. I was able to bring something positive as a man to say, hey, dust yourself off and move on. There was something positive that came there. But that said, there have been a lot of cases when we've been raising our three boys that I've taken that approach and Karina has come back and said, we need to go check on him. You're kind of dust yourself off either because of a physical hurt or because of something else that happened. Hey, you're not realizing the whole picture here. You're not seeing what's all going on in the emotional landscape. We need to go back in. You need to go back in and talk to him. You need to make sure that he's okay. And she, 95 to 90% of the time is right that I've missed something significant in it. So here's my point. When all four of us reacted and the three women said, ah, and I said, get up, the point is not that I was right or they were wrong or that they were right and I was wrong. The point is that both of those need to happen. Both of those need to happen for our churches. Both of those need to happen in our marriages. Both of those need to happen with our kids, that we're bringing both of our contributions 
to the table. And frankly, another way that this plays out is, is of course, in the marriage situation, which, which Genesis 2.24 talks about how this plays out in our marriages, just by talking about the idea that, all right, the man is going to leave behind. The man is going to take the sacrificial step of leaving behind his family and clinging to his wife and being united to her and being one flesh. And so that's when you get into the New Testament and you get into passages like Ephesians 5 that talks about, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, you want to be in charge? You think it's good to be the head of the household? All right, here's your job. Love your wife just like Jesus loves his bride. Jesus died for his bride. Be ready to die for your bride. That says to women, along with the submission commands, says, wives, respect your husbands. And, and uh, I'll just throw this in quickly, especially for you women here. Um, if you're in a situation where in your marriage you feel like you don't have much power, I just want to appeal to you to embrace that your respect, your ability to give respect to your husband is way more empowering and powerful than you could probably ever imagine. There are husbands who will be ready to fight dragons and conquer villages based on your respect. It is a profoundly powerful dynamic. God has made us equal. And God, thank God, he's made us different because those differences are complementary. But then you could look at it and say, all right, well, if this is so great, if this is so beautiful, this is supposed to work so perfect and everything, why doesn't it seem to work that well? Why does it seem like even when people are trying to embrace these great things in the Bible, that it still seems to go haywire, that we still have so much conflict in our relationships? Well, that's because of the fourth core truth about men and women, and that's that men and women are fallen. The last verse in Genesis 2 says this, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame, which is not just a statement about their physicality before each other, but is the idea, it's this beautiful picture right before the fall in Genesis 3, that basically says they had nothing to hide from each other, and they had nothing to hide from God. No shame, total transparency, total openness. And then after Adam and Eve eat from the fruit in Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 7 says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The fall happens, sin comes into the world, and immediately shame and hiding from each other, and then the next step after this is hiding from God, comes. Frankly, it shouldn't be that surprising to us that we've made a mess of the whole world and that we've also made a mess of male and female relationships and male and female complementarity. We've made a mess of all this stuff. No wonder this is one of the areas where this is going haywire. In fact, God predicted that this would go haywire. Look at what he says. In, in part of the curse that happens after the fall in Genesis 3, God brings a specific message to the woman. And Genesis 3.16, he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children, which is the, this tragic thing of one of the most beautiful things that you get to be a part of in bringing children into the world is going to be marred by pain and sometimes by death. It's the first part of this, but look closely at the second thing that he says. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, what this is talking about is not the physical consequences of the fall. This is talking about the relational fallout that's going to happen now that we're sinful, fallen people. He says, your desire will be for your husband, 
which isn't saying you're really going to want him sexually. That's not what that's talking about. Genesis chapter 4, in the story of Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel um, God comes to Cain before Cain kills his brother and says to him almost the exact same thing that he says to Eve here. He says, sin is crouching at the door and it desires you. What he meant is it desires to control you. Here's what God is saying to the woman. He's saying, your desire will be to control your husband. Instead of lovingly coming alongside, respectfully finding all the ways that you can help and to be a part of what's going on here, you are going to have an overwhelming desire to control him. And frankly, because God built into women some special things in terms of emotion and communicative parts of the brain, you're going to be pretty good at it. You're going to be pretty good at being able to do this. You're going to be able to run circles around your husbands when it comes to talking and when it comes to emotions. You're going to be pretty good at controlling them. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, which isn't a positive statement about masculinity. He's not saying you're going to want to control him, but he's going to get it all right and lovingly lead you. He's saying you're going to try to control him sinfully and he's going to try to dominate you sinfully. We're both going to have sinful instincts that come into play now that the fall has been brought into the world. And and this is really significant for us. I mean, we've talked about this, and and let me just try to bring this together a little bit for for where we go with this. You know, the the opening thing that I talked about is this whole idea that, hey, our masculinity and femininity, it's not an obstacle, it's a gift to be embraced. We are meant to embrace this, which means that we have to make active choices to embrace this, which means that if you're a man, you're probably going to have one of two primary temptations that's going to subvert biblical masculinity. Temptation number one is to be a tyrant, to say, I'm stronger, I'm louder, I can dominate if I want to. That's temptation number one. Temptation number two is to passively be like Adam and just abdicate responsibility. I'll just say, I don't know which is the bigger problem in our culture right now. I'll just say both are really big problems. And so if you are a man, God's calling for you is not to passively observe. And it's also not to be a tyrant. It's to, in loving, sacrificial, servant-hearted ways, take on responsibility and say, God is holding me responsible to take the servant-hearted lead. If I have a family, especially there. If I'm in the church, especially there. This isn't about power grabs. This isn't about self-promotion. This is about me taking the lead to saying, I will be held responsible for what I do with what God has given me. And it means that if you're a woman, there's probably going to be an extra temptation to use the God-given abilities that God has given you and instead to subvert those to try to control and to try to manipulate, to try to take over and to try to undercut. And that it's going to be a battle to say, no, I really got to trust God enough. I got to trust God enough that I'm bringing help. And again, not help in some weak way that I'm bringing help. So just think about this, if you're a woman. Um, Number one, some of you might say, hey, you know what? I'm not trying to control. I'm not subverting. I'm not trying to take over. I'm really taking on that whole quietness idea. I don't do this. Nobody could accuse me of trying to take over or trying to subvert. And so if you're looking at that and you're feeling pretty good and you're like, all right, I'm not trying to do that. I'm pretty quiet. My question for you is this. If you're quiet, are you helping? Because helping is active. Helping isn't passive. You're not helping if you're not saying anything. You're probably seeing all kinds of stuff that needs to be said. And you need to be willing to courageously 
and in a godly way step forward and say what God has shown you. And if you're on the other hand and you're looking at it and you're saying, oh, I'm saying it. Like, I'm, believe me, I'm saying it. I'm speaking up. When I see stuff, he knows. When I see stuff, they know. Let me just ask you this. Again, same question. Are you helping? Are you just getting stuff off your chest? Are you just saying what you see? Or are you coming alongside and saying, God has shown me something and I don't think that they see it. I don't think that he sees it. So I want to make it known because this is part of God's special gift to the church, to my family, to me, that I'm seeing things that if they're unsaid, will be missed. The question on both sides of this is, are you helping? And God has called you in courageous ways to step forward and help. But let me just say one final thing. When we look at this whole idea that masculinity and femininity are biblical ideas that we need to embrace, it's a reminder of something else. And it's a reminder that as fallen men and women, we're people who need a savior. And thank God we have a savior in Jesus. We're living with this fallen flesh. We're living with the world subverting us. We're living with the enemy tempting us. We're living with all of that. But we have received a Savior in Jesus. And part of the great privilege that we have is when we embrace biblical manhood and womanhood, when we embrace these ideas, we're not only doing things that are going to bring greater blessing to us and greater harmony in our relationships. We are embracing something that's going to show the beauty of the God of the universe to the people around us in a world that's deeply confused on this subject. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, thank you for the good gift that you've given us in being men and women. Thank you for your wisdom and thank you for your grace. We pray, Father, for your help and your leading. We pray that you would give us hearts to embrace who you've made us to be. And we pray that you would give us courage to live those things out. Father, I pray that you lead us to gather around one another and that there would be a brotherhood of men spurring each other on, a sisterhood of women encouraging each other. We would all be pointing each other to your great word and to your good gifts to us. Father, lead us in this and show your glory to the world as we live this out. In Jesus' name, amen.